0: Welcome to New Life Fellowship. While Rich is um, being restored by God, rested so that he can lead us and feed us in the year to come, as he mentioned, we have a series of um, other speakers coming in. My name is Greg Howe. I serve on the preaching team here at New Life when I'm not doing my day job, which is uh, serving with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on college and university campuses. It's good to have you all here. Uh, This weekend, thank you for those of you who didn't travel this weekend and still came. And for those of you who are visiting, um, a special welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, Let me pray for us. Lord, um, you promised in your scriptures that um, your word is like the rain which falls from heaven and nourishes the ground beneath it so that there would be um, sufficient grain for sowing and grain for eating. Um, that you would feed those of us who are hungry, that you would restore those of us who are starving uh, with your word, and then that you would enable us for the journey to come. So, Lord, I pray, uh, be faithful to your own word as your word goes forth today. Uh, Nourish our souls so that we would be fed and would have ample to feed those around us. In Christ's name, amen. One of the most common things you hear if you're a parent, and I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old, is a frequent two-word phrase, right? It's not fair. Now, the reality, of course, is that you don't just hear that from children. You hear it at work, don't you? It's not fair. They got more money than we did. They got whatever, right? You hear it in our neighborhoods. Why do they get a park and we don't get a park? Why do right? You hear it in our marriage. Why am I doing all the work? It's not fair. And the reality is, there are a lot of ways to respond. And as a parent, husband, person who lives in an airport and has a job, I've practiced a lot of these. Sometimes you try to respond to it's not fair with reasoned logical argument. Sweetie, I know it doesn't seem fair, but you're older, right? And that never goes anywhere, right? Or it's just a season, right? Far better as a way to respond to things like it's not fair, it's to tell a story, we found, because while logical arguments have their place, they're easily forgotten, and they often aren't terribly convincing, right? I mean, if we're honest, let's be clear, right? Those of us who are preaching know, you all have a hard time remembering what we said last week, not to mention last month, right? Like when Pete comes up with one of his, here are seven principles for whatever comes out of the passage that he's, like most of us, if we make it through the lobby remembering all seven, you're kind of done. Um, We know this. We don't feel too bad about it. Um, But what we remember, of course, are not logical principles or clear next steps. What we remember are stories, right? So, for example, if you have been at our church a long time, we all know the story of when Jerry, the founding pastor, senior pastor's wife, said, I quit this church because I no longer respect it or you. Now, if you're visiting, you're like, what crazy story is that? Pull anybody who's been around here a long time, maybe while you're grabbing coffee down to the shell room, we'd all be happy to tell you that story. But it's a story we all know, right? You can, like, what are the five M's? Who knows, but we all know the story of the day Jerry quit. And that story profoundly shapes the ways that we think about ourselves here at this church. Who we've become and who we're becoming. Stories are powerful. So when my children say things like, it's not fair, I tell them a story. And the story... I tend to tell them, or often read to them when their child was, a book called Beatrice's Goat. And I don't know if you know this story, but it's about a little girl named Beatrice um, who desperately wants to go to school. And every day, she sees the school off in the distance, but she realizes she and her family can't afford to go. She doesn't have uniforms. They can't afford the tuition. And so she works with her mother in the small garden they have trying to make enough money to live. And then one day her mom says, Beatrice, there's a very special present coming. And Beatrice is like, what is it? And her mom goes, it's a goat. Now, if you're a child, a goat doesn't seem great, right? But for Beatrice, suddenly a goat begins to open up a world of possibilities. Because when you milk a goat, which has a lot of milk, you have enough milk for all of your brothers and sisters. And so suddenly there's protein in the family and there's calcium in the family and people begin to grow. Because it's a goat, and goats make a lot of milk, you can take the excess milk that you don't need, and you can sell it to other people and begin to make money. Because goats have babies, you begin to have more goats, so you actually have more milk, and you can give away the goats so that other families begin to benefit. This is what Heifer International, which is the sponsor of this book, does. And so you begin to see throughout that book, right? Beatrice quietly milking the goat and the children drinking and she collecting her money and then she collects, a, you know, a handful of coins from the weeks and months of selling um, goat milk and she goes, mama, look, we have enough. Maybe we can buy a bolt of cloth for everybody to have a dress or we can buy some extra grain to f- um, plant and her mom goes, oh no, Beatrice, that's not what this money's for. We have money to buy you a uniform. You can go to school I actually get choked up every time I think about the story. But all right, you can go to school next semester. And Beatrice is so excited, and she goes to school. And one morning, she's milking her goat, selling it, and her friend comes by, and he goes, you're so lucky you can go to school. And she goes, you're getting the next goat. Our, our goat is pregnant, and you're going to have it in a year. You could go to school too, right? And there's something about that story that's slowly weaving its way into my children's head so that when they go, it's not fair, We can look at them, and we don't even have to say Beatrice's goat. And suddenly, fairness takes on a whole new meaning, right? They know the story. They know how to reorient their world. And that's what the parables of Jesus do. In a world that desperately wants to press us into its values and its vision, its ideas and its idols, Jesus told these stories to disrupt our thinking a little bit, to give us a new narrative, a new way of imagining what the world should be like and could be like so that we could live into it. Very frequently in the Gospels, you'll notice Jesus doesn't give you here are five easy ways to live a better life. He instead tells you a story. And this is critical because in Jesus's time, as he looked around, there were so many competing stories that people had to put up with. For example, um, there was the power of the Roman Empire. And wherever the Roman Empire was, um, you would see symbols of Roman rule. So you would see this, right, We had a Roman eagle, which demonstrated its power and its preeminence and its authority. You'd have the Roman sigil. And so wherever you go, people would be saying essentially through these symbols, which would have been everywhere, in the hands of Roman legionnaires, on the walls of buildings, on the coins that you would see from Rome. Rome is all powerful, and we've brought peace, we've brought prosperity, and everybody is doing well. Just enjoy it. We're permanent. We're going to be here forever. Don't fight it right? Everywhere you went, you'd be receiving these values. To give you a sense of how pervasive it would be, right? It's exactly like what you would see this weekend here in the United States, right? Where all of a sudden flags everywhere, eagles screaming on screens, right? Um, incredibly um, aspirational language about we the people living in peace and prosperity, enjoying life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and everything about the 4th of July is designed to remind you, you belong in this country, you should adopt these values, right? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps like those um, new immigrants. Do the right thing so that you can enjoy peace, prosperity, and all of these stories, right, communicate a vision and a set of values that you're supposed to imbibe, which is why we have these big national celebrations, and to shape you into a particular kind of story with particular kinds of hopes and aspirations. The problem, of course, is that these stories, there are cracks in them, right? Not everybody actually enjoys peace, prosperity. Um, Not everybody actually lives free or hopefully in these kinds of systems. And it's into this kind of system that Jesus tells his stories. He starts talking about a kingdom which is not like the Roman kingdom, He starts talking about values and begins to dream a dream about what culture and community could be like that's not quite like the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And he hopes these stories stick with us and in us and begin to be communicated through us so that we become a different kind of people who live in a different kind of kingdom than the ones that they may have seen all around them. And we begin to offer hope to the people who need to hear it. So Jesus tells one of these stories. For the kingdom of heaven, the place God reigns, where you see God at work, is like a landowner who went out early one morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which was a day's wage, for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon, and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last hones who was hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, of course, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. "'Those who were hired last worked only one hour,' they said, "'and you have made them equal to those of us "'who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day.'" But he answered one of them, "'I'm not being unfair to you, friend. "'Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? "'Take your pay and go. "'I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. "'Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? "'Or are you envious because I am generous?' So the last will be first, and the first will be last. You can see why this is profoundly unfair, right? Right? Like, you can imagine what it's like to be in that kind of situation. Now, like, imagine being those first workers, right? Imagine, like, you've been toiling. And the people who came last who did an hour work compared to the 12 hours of work that you did are receiving the exact same pay that you do. Right? I mean, I could actually tell when I was reading the parable, some of you were like, Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like. When God reigns and rules, this is what the world looks like. Let's, Let's unpack it a bit. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like an employer who keeps going back to find people who need him and who need work. Let's bring it up to a contemporary context, right? You all know that um, for a lot of people who need day laborers, people who need a job that day, um, they show up at Home Depot, and there's a whole group of people often around Home Depots looking for work, and you kind of wave your hands, they run to your car, and what you do is you go early in the morning, you pick your best workers and go. The kingdom of God is like an employer who needed to find workers. So he goes out to the local Home Depot. And he says, hey, you guys look really strong. You look really diligent. You look like you'd work hard. Come with me. I'll give you a job. And I'll pay you a day's wage. A denarius was enough to feed a family for a day. And so that's your day's wage. And they're like, great. So at 6 in the morning, right, because you want to start early, they go back and work in the vineyard. Why does he keep going back? Part of what you have to ask is, like, how incompetent is this employer? Right? Like, like it's not just he had to go back once, but he went back... After picking people up at 6, he went back at 9, then again at 12, then again at 3, and 5. Like, how bad of an employer could he be, right? Because if any of you are small business owners, you know the name of the game is you budget very carefully and you hire the minimal amount of workers that you need in order to preserve the capital that you have. And nobody who's been running a vineyard for many years is going to be so bad at doing it or realize there's so much work that they need to go back four or five times during the course of the day. What drives the vineyard owner over and over to go back into the village. I want to suggest what might have been going on in his mind was this, right? At 6 a.m., you guys look really strong. You look like you really hard workers. Come with me and get a job. And so he pulls a small group out and he sees those who are left still waiting for a job, but he's like, that's okay. I have the people I need. And he sets them out in his vineyard and they're working, right? At 6 a.m., 7 a.m., 8 a.m., it's beginning to get a little warmer and he goes... I can't get those other people who are still looking for work out of my mind. So he goes back, hey, I'll, I'll take like another seven of you, okay? Why don't you come and work and get a job? And they're like, awesome. And so they come, and I'll pay you whatever what's appropriate. And they go back and work the vineyard. Now it's nine, it's 10, it's 11, right? It's starting to get hot. People are beginning to sweat. They've been working. The people we hired at the beginning have already worked six hours. And he goes, there are a lot of people at that Home Depot. So he goes back again. He goes, hey, I'll take like another 10 of you. I have a, a lot of work in the vineyard. It's a big vineyard. Why, why, why don't you come with me? And so they come back, and they start working, and it's now one, and it's two, and it's three. Right? And right? Those of us who are New Yorkers, like by 3 p.m., it's horrendous out in the summer, isn't it, right? The buildings are hot. It's steamy. It smells like urine in the street. It's just terrible. And so the people who started the day have been working nine hours now, and he goes, man, there were so many... So he goes back and he goes, okay, I'll take some more of you, um, to, and give you and pay you appropriately. So he brings them back. So they start working again, three, four. It's almost an hour to the time they're going to stop working. He goes, one more trip to the village. I'll be right back. And he pulls that last group. Now, who's going to be that last group, right? Who doesn't get chosen all day? Because most people would have knocked off work. Like If they didn't find a job by 12, they would have left. Who's going to still be there at five, an hour before You stop working. It's going to be people who everybody else had passed over, right? All the other landlords had already picked up everybody they wanted. You've already picked up not just the first string, but the second, third, and fourth string people. These are the fifth string people, right? These are the desperate people. These are the people who would think, I might not get a day's pay, but man, if I could just get an hour pay, that would be better than going home and having to look at my wife and having her look at me and go, nothing again, huh? Not probably with any sense of, like, disgust, but with a sense of despair. Because if it's nothing, it means there's nothing to eat tonight, is there? Right? There's nothing to eat for you, the worker. There's nothing to eat for the children. And if there's nothing to eat for the children, all the moms know there's nothing to eat for the mom. Because there's no way a mom's going to eat before her children get fed. And so those workers who are at 5 p.m. are the people who don't seem strong enough or skilled enough to get called early, but who who are so desperate, they'll, they'll take anything they can find, no matter how late they find it. What drives the landlord to go back over and over and over and over to these workers who need a job? Compassion, I think. I think the landlord thinks... I have everything that I need, all the workers that I need, but they have things that they still need that I could give them. These men are desperate for work. If I don't give them a denarius, they're not going to be able to feed their families. If I don't give them a denarius, they're not going to have the dignity of being able to do good, honest work this day. If I don't give them a denarius, then the day is lost for them. And so I think it's compassion that sends them out not maybe at six in the morning when you first get your workers, but again at nine and at 12 and at three and at five. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. The Kingdom of God is like a landowner who compulsively repeatedly, constantly keeps going out and bringing people in to give them what they need right it 's a landlord who goes, "I have everything I really need, but I know you need me because i 'm going to need you need me for your daily bread, and so i 'm going to bring you into my vineyard. I know you need dignity, value, and worth, so i 'm going to bring you in. I know you want to care for your families and the people you 're responsible for, so even if it 's just for an hour." I'm going to give you something purposeful to do. Praise be to God, right? This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's a God who continues to search and to reach out and to seek us even when we're lost. One of my favorite stories of what God is like when he searches, like that comes from this book. It's called Out of the Salt Shaker. It's my favorite book on evangelism. And in it, Becky Pippert tells of um, an experience that she and university staff had. They were at Stanford University doing an evangelistic um, week-long program. And so they would do talks. They would lead Bible studies in the dorms. And during one of these conversations, Becky met a young woman named Lois. And she and Lois talked a few times, and Becky invited her to come to the Bible study. And Lois was bright, articulate, and totally disinterested in God. But she said, sure, I'll come, but I'm sure it's not going to be relevant to me. So Becky said, awesome, come tonight at the dorm lounge, we're going to have a Bible study. And so Becky um, had prepared John 4, the story of the Samaritan woman, when she found out that Lois was coming and Lois was bringing her live-in boyfriend, Phil. And she thought, oh, this is going to be awkward. But she said... I didn't have time to re-prepare, so we sat in a circle, we pulled out our Bibles, and she thought, well, rather than have Lois, who was sitting on her left, um, read the Bible passage, I'll start with Sally here on the right, and we'll just each read a paragraph, and it won't even get to uh, Lois, and it won't be as awkward. So she said, hey, Sally, why don't you start reading the passage in John 4, and let's each take a paragraph and read it. Well, weirdly enough, Sally, who was actually over there, started reading because this was Sally's twin sister. And so they begin to read the passage of Jesus and Samaria and the well, and by the time it gets to Lois, Lois reads the line that where Jesus goes, you were right in saying that the man you were living with is not your husband. <laughs> and then Lois looked up and said, hmm, this is more relevant than I thought. And then just kept reading. <laughs> well, it was clear during the course of the Bible study, Lois was captivated by how graciously, honestly, and gently Jesus was interacting with this woman and how that woman was changed through that passage. And so during the rest of the week, they continued to meet and continue to talk. And Lois admitted to Becky, she said, "You know, my parents, who are Japanese-American, don't know that I'm living with my boyfriend this year uh, here at Stanford. Um, I I know they care about me, but they've never said they care about me. And um, it's one of the reasons I'm drawn to Phil, she said during one of the conversations. I just want to know that I'm loved. I want to know that I'm cared for. And Phil does that. He loves me and he tells me he loves me and he cares for me. And she said, but, you know, the problem is it feels like um, sand going through a sieve. Like, it just pours out. I feel empty all the time. What am I supposed to do? And Becky said, you know, Lois, the problem is you're hoping Phil will meet all of your desires and no human being can possibly do that. You need something more. And Lois said, but that's crazy. I mean, what kind of joke is that, that you have this deep longing for love and to be cared for and to be known and no human being can do that? What what are you supposed to do? And of course, Becky, being a professional Christian, said, well, there's something bigger, right? You need to come home to God. God can love you like that. God can care for you. And Remember the passage of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well? how deeply he loved her and cared for her. That's what you need. And she could tell on Lois's face that Lois was really wrestling with it. And so Becky said, will you come home to a God who loves you? And Lois said, I think so, what will it cost me? And Becky said, well, Jesus takes you as you are, but he's not content to let you stay there. Let's look at what might get in your way. And as they began to talk, they realized it was Phil, Lois's boyfriend, that she was living and sleeping with. And as they began to study more of the scripture, because Lois wanted to assess the cost clearly, she said, Becky, how can I leave him? He loves me. Uh, Even if I left him, where would I live? I mean, this is the beginning of the school year. There's not a single dorm room available right now. I'd have nowhere to live. But as they prayed and as they wrestle, Lois said, I want to give myself to Jesus, and she did. As she left um, that conversation, Becky began to cry. She said, you know, how could a young Christian deal with so many complications and so much difficulty right away, right? It should be easier at the beginning. That night, as they were getting ready to start the Bible study, there was this kind of large clamor by the door. And as students looked up, there was Lois. She had like three suitcases tucked in her arm, a huge backpack. She had moved out of her apartment and was bringing all the stuff to the Bible study. People were like, why did you leave home? And Lois said, I'm not leaving home. I'm finally coming home. Well, seeing her commitment to discipleship, three women who were not yet Christians decided to become Christians that night. One woman who thought she was a Christian decided she didn't want to be if Jesus was going to be like that. And Phil was angry, right? He was angry at Becky for leading a Bible study that caused his girlfriend to walk out on him and left, right, and left him. And it was terrible until about three months later, um, he decided to become a Christian. And when he talked to Lois later, he said, you know what, I'm so grateful that you loved Jesus more than you loved me. Because it was your obedience that provoked me in my anger to begin to seek. Your obedience changed my eternal destiny. One of the things I love about that story is, where are some of the last places you'd expect to find Jesus, right? One of the last places you'd expect to find Jesus is in the middle of a relationship which violates everything Scripture says about how men and women should interact before they're married. And yet, in the middle of that relationship, Jesus makes himself known right? Where is the last place you'd expect to find Jesus in the really angry life and angry thoughts of an atheist who feels like he's been betrayed by Christians, and yet Jesus makes himself present there and begins to call Phil to himself, right? Our God seems to have no shame. He continues to call us and invite us. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a landowner who continually goes out to the village over and over again, calling people, come, be with me, be with me, so I can provide you, care for you, and offer you life, and life everlasting. It strikes me for us as a church, if we were to believe that the kingdom of God was like this, that it would completely change the way that we live, wouldn't it? For those of us who struggle with sin and addictions, I mean, the, those of us who do here, right? Um, imagine this perhaps when you seem, when you feel furthest from God. In the actual place where you are continually, repeatedly, compulsively sinning, God may be closer to you than ever before. And rather than feeling guilty, what you should be hearing is his whispers, nothing will separate you from my love. Angels, demons, nothing will separate you from my love. You may feel dead inside and I am here. You may be wrestling with doubt and despair and I am here. I will never leave you. Come home to me. Do not be afraid. The kingdom of God is like that, Jesus says. What's the kingdom of God like? It's like he's like an employer who not only seeks us out, but searches us out with abundance, generosity, and grace. Remember, at about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still more others standing around, waiting for work. And at the end of the day, he gives them a full day's wage. Think about how those workers felt when they got a day's wage, right? Because you had been out there like at 5.30 in the morning hoping to get a job, and you see at 6, the first group of people peel out, the stronger people, the people who had better tools and better skills, and by 9, you'd seen kind of the second stringers peel out and leave, and by noon, people have given up, they're headed home, but you're thinking, I cannot face going home with nothing again for my wife and for my children, I can't face the thought of just sitting there all day. And so you wait. And at 3 o'clock, other people get chosen. And you still don't. And at 5 o'clock, an hour before the bell rings and time is over, somebody calls on you. And you go. And you're just hoping, man, if I could just bring a sliver of something home, a small handful of grain, something to show I have value, worth, and I was able to contribute. And somebody gives you a full day's wage. Like you've been working since 6 in the morning, but you didn't start till 5. And you got it all. right. This is what God is like, Jesus says. He's the kind of God who finds you when you despair, and you feel hopeless, and you feel like you have nothing to give or offer. And he goes, I'm going to give you everything that the people who worked really hard and all day are receiving. Don't worry. My generosity is so far more abundant than you could ask or imagine. You could have it all. For us, I think this challenges the deep embedded sense of meritocracy, an effort that we've deeply imbibed of both as a church here in the United States, and as part of a faith tradition that goes back centuries. Right, we're the we belong to a church tradition that says very clearly: we believe you're saved by grace alone. There's nothing you can do to contribute your salvation. Jesus did everything, but now that you belong to Him, could you try a little harder? could you work a little harder at being nicer and kinder? Maybe, you know, like, don't be embarrassing on Facebook. Can you be a little holier, right? Like, Jesus may have done everything, but work for it a little bit more now that you're in, right? And that's part of kind of how American culture is, isn't it? Um. We love the stories of people who started really poor, but work by sheer dint of effort and being really independent and in managing their money while they do really well over time, right? It's the Horatio Alger myth. It's the story. It's why Hamilton is such, right? He's young, scrappy, and hungry, and he's not going to throw away his shot, and he's going to do really well, right? We love those kind of things. We um, do that in our spiritual lives. If I pray and if I'm really holy, God's going to take care of my kids and give me a parking space, Or when I walk down into the subway, the train will pull in right as I walk down and the doors will open. And God bless, it's an empty car where the air condition works. Okay, I'm just totally projecting my fantasies right now. I'll stop. Um, We do it in the face of national tragedies, right? Um, When a young black man is killed, the immediate gut response is, well, I'd like to show why he was an honor student and doing real well as if somebody who is an honor student and doing real well has more value than somebody who wasn't. Um, We do it with the immigration debate, right? The constant debate right now in our country is immigrants, do they take or do they give to the country? In fact, um, I saw on Twitter just the other day, Carlson Tucker or Tucker Carlson, I don't really know who this is. I think he's on, well, he's at Fox News, but he asked the question, why does America benefit from having tons of people from failing countries come here? Right? And I loved and I thought was really profound, the next statement from the next tweeter. Um, we don't, and I'm sick and tired of it. It really pisses me off that refugees and illegals get more assistance than vets and U.S. citizens. Right? Um, Tucker Carlson's tweet was tweeted just under 4,000 4, times. Um, when I saw it, it was 11,000 times it was retweeted uh, by this morning, which means millions of people. See that? And it reflects millions of people in the country. Now... Whatever you think about it, it presupposes a particular kind of value system, right? If you've contributed a lot, you deserve a lot. If you bring value, you're valuable. If you work hard, you're worthy. And into that system, Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is like this. It's like a system where somebody who comes in at 5 p.m. is given what they need for the day. The same amount that somebody who came in at 6 a.m., 11 hours earlier. What would it look like if our story as a congregation, as a people, and in the spheres of influence that we have, was an economy of generosity and grace rather than merely what you earn and what you deserve? that the goal wasn't fairness, but generosity, right? wasn't just equity, but was grace. Because I have to say, as I think about it in my own life, I don't really want fairness from God. I want grace, right? I don't want what I deserve. I want generosity from God, right? As I receive from people, I don't want to be given what I'm due. I would actually like a little bit more than I'm due. I'm that selfish, (laughs) What would it look like if how would that change the conversations around race and around class and around education and immigration and other things in our country? Right? And part of what immediately seizes up in us, but there won't be enough. What if we do that? There won't be sufficient for me. I won't get what I need. And the beautiful thing about the kingdom of God, Jesus seems to suggest, is if you believe in a landowner who's like this and a God who's like this, who owns everything who created all things and is sovereign over all things, then maybe we don't have to grasp for ourselves, but we can extend generously to everyone, trusting not in my ability to produce, but in God's generous ability to give. You see how also it loosens up the conversation? It's no longer just a zero-sum game. It's not the economy of the haves and have-nots, but the one who has all. <sighs> That's one of the reasons we pray the prayer of generosity as a congregation every week, to embed us in a new kind of story. The kingdom of God is like an employer who keeps going to look it's like the kind of employer who gives generously to those who have nothing but desperately need something. It's also the kind of kingdom who really challenges our sense of superiority and, and entitlement, right? Remember these guys? So when those who came who were hired first, um, they expected to receive more, but each one of them was also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired and last and worked only an hour, they said, you have made them equal to us who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And God challenges, Jesus challenges them, right? It's mine to do what I want with. Did you not get what you deserve? There's something about that line, though, right? You have made them equal to us, who've borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day that I think is core to this story. Think about how those first workers felt, right? Empathetically, we understand. They've been working 12 hours at this point. They worked when it was cool at dawn, when it got hot at noon and into three, and as the day began to cool off again, their hands have been abraded by picking up the vines. They're soaked in their own sweat. They're dehydrated and hungry. And these people who just did an hour's work when the day was cool got as much as we did. How is that fair? How is that right? And the landowner says, did you not get everything I promised? Haven't you received what we agreed? There's no injustice here. Why are you upset that I'm being generous to other people? They're wrestling with a deep sense of entitlement, aren't they? A deep sense of superiority. And you know this because if you look at um, Matthew 19, which is the preceding passage, it's the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, look, I've obeyed all of the commandments. I love God and I love my neighbor. What else can I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, You need to sell everything you own. And then come follow me. And the rich young ruler goes, can't I just love people? And walks away sad. The apostles, right, the disciples, having seen this, go, we gave up everything for you, Jesus. We've abandoned everything to follow you. Not like that guy. And Jesus goes, look, nobody has ever given up family, wealth, riches, or homes um, in this life who won't receive them a thousandfold in the age come, don't worry, but, and then he tells them this story. So, you think you're so good at following me. You think you've sacrificed so much to follow me. Follow me well, Jesus seems to say, right? And that's the problem with churches, I think, is that we gather together knowing we're desperate, knowing we need Jesus, and slowly he begins to change us, Right? Mostly, right? Like, we're, we're getting a little holier as we go. We're getting a little nicer, a little kinder, a little Jesus-ier over time. <laughs> and as we do so, the standards of our community climb a little bit, right? Early on, we're the kind of church where the pastor's wife will go, I quit. I can't take it anymore. And now we're, like, a little healthier, right? And we're a little kinder, and we're reaching out to the community a little bit more. And what happens is, slowly, our standards begin to rise, and our doors begin to close. Um. It's easy to become like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, where when somebody who isn't quite as holy, isn't quite as nice, isn't quite as transformed, comes back home, we're like, oh, what are you doing here? Rather than, what are you doing here? This is awesome. This is wonderful. We start to think of membership in the community of God as a mark of distinction or of entitlement rather than being profoundly grateful we were let in at all and desperately wondering where the other people are, right? I often think of a church that I know of in New Jersey. Um, it's called, um, Pre- uh, what is it? It's the Presbyterian Church of New Providence. Now, if you don't know New Providence, New Providence is a really nice Jersey suburb. It's just like an hour out on the New Jersey transit, right? So um, the way you know it's a Presbyterian church and a wealthy church is this, all the furniture matches, Right? Like, we've all, like, like, you walk in and you know somebody chose that furniture intentionally for that room and it looks lovely. That's how you know it's a, a wealthy church, as opposed to the kind of churches I grew up in where it's like, oh, look, grandma's basement of several families vomited into this room. <laughs> um, so I was there uh, visiting a couple years ago, and what I learned is um, uh, the Presbyterian Church in New Providence has this amazing youth program. Right, they actually fill that entire church building with like hundreds of kids from the local, from the neighborhood, um, who are there. And they, you know, there's like a skate park they've created. There's like video game center, like everything to engage the children and begin to introduce them to Jesus. And I was in one of those really nice parlors, and I ha- I was talking to the youth pastor. I said, like, do you have the problem of like with the elders of like people didn't put the chair back in the right place after the youth event? And he said, "Oh no, no, it's not like that at all here." I'm like, "Really?" Because that was the kind of church I grew up in. Um, he said, "In fact, um, you know, things get really disrupted here when we have youth group. In fact, the village just um, has just assigned us an ambulance every Friday because they know there's going to be a drug overdose somewhere on the grounds." And I said, "Your elders must be freaking out, right? That you're just planning for drug overdoses every Friday." And the youth pastor said, oh no, the elders told me, you're finally reaching the kids who need Jesus. For most churches, right, the goal would be, we don't want those kids near our kids. We have to, That's why they're in youth group, so they aren't out there on Friday. I love a church which has matching furniture that says and said, oh no, we've only succeeded when those kids are with our kids here in our church. Who do you look around at and wonder, what are you doing here when you see them at church? I want to suggest that unless our church is filled with people of whom we sometimes would want to go, what are you doing here? If we don't do that at least weekly, maybe we're doing church wrong. Because if we knew the generosity of our God, and it experienced it abundantly ourselves, then in fact, the rising standards of our church's holiness and commitment to following Jesus would actually make us hungrier and happier if the building and our small groups and communities were filled with people who are far off and distant, we would be delighted that they're experiencing the graciousness and generosity of God. We'd be filled to overflowing with joy at it rather than being worried by it. Because the people who are desperate, the people who who are needy, the people who have nothing to offer would finally begin to experience the God we worship. What is the kingdom of God like? Jesus says, it's like this landowner who makes these crazy decisions to show up hour after hour at the village square calling people who aren't equipped, who aren't trained, who don't look that diligent, it may not be that strong. Come, come to me and let me give you what you actually need. What's the kingdom of God like, Jesus said? It's like the people who, who so are so desperate who find welcome. Welcome who find what they need at the hands of this employer. It's like people who feel like they've been pretty good and feel like they've been pretty skilled and feel like they've been pretty diligent, being so changed by an encounter with that employer that they go, you're right, I received everything I need. I'm so grateful more people have received it too. Jesus tells this story to begin to change our imagination to change the possibility of what the world could look like so that we aren't merely the people who just are going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, save the right kind of money so that we could pass it down to the next generation so they can get into a better neighborhood, to get into a better school, to get a better job, and do it over and over again. Right? He tells us these stories so that when you think about who God is, you aren't thinking, man, he must be really angry at me right now or disappointed at me right now. But instead, when he goes, what's God like, you think... He's like a guy who keeps going back to hire people who he doesn't need just out of love and compassion for them. He tells these stories to help us imagine who we could become as a community so that we aren't satisfied with what we have but long for what he actually has to offer. He tells these stories and then embodies them in a particularly concrete way, particularly around communion Why do we take communion together as a congregation once a month? It's to actually reenact one of the stories so that we won't forget it. What does communion do? It reminds us as we take the bread and break it and take the cup and dip the bread in it that Jesus Christ, our God, came into this world with all of its dirt, despair, and decay and enters into it so deeply because he was filled with compassion for those who need what he has to offer he sees people who have nothing and need everything and says, I will offer you forgiveness by dying in your place and on your behalf. I'll offer you a hope for the future by telling you the story of how God is redeeming the world. I'm going to partner with you to accomplish my purposes that I began in creation and will continue until the very end to redeem everything. I'm going to give you life, forgiveness, and purpose Come to me, right? That's what we do when we reenact communion, as we remind ourselves of that story. When we reenact the story of communion, we reenact our own stories because we remember there is nothing that we could do to save ourselves. Jesus accomplished it all. So we walk with him from the Last Supper up to the cross and wait for his resurrection and return. (laughs) When we reenact the story of communion, we're eating a meal together. That's why we encourage you as you take it and you dip the bread into the cup, walk back to your seats. We're going to eat together because this is a family meal that we're sharing. And at least my family, you don't start eating until everybody's been served, right? At least in a Chinese family, you make sure the oldest person is served first, then the next oldest person, and then when you're really young, you might get what's left. But we all eat together until when the first person picks up the spoon who's the oldest, we all pick up the spoon and eat together. But at a family meal, this is what happens you notice who's not there, right? You notice who's missing from the family meal. And part of what we do when we take communion is we remember God sought us out and searched us out, that we've come to him with nothing, and there are millions of people in New York City who we long to eat this meal with, who still do not know. And we remind ourselves of that story. So brothers and sisters, we're going to take communion together. As we do so, We're going to um, pray um, a prayer of confession. And here's the deal. If this parable is true, then I invite you, pray this prayer of confession as you remember the sins and things that have kept you back from Jesus with no guilt. The goal of confession is not guilt. It is to remind ourselves of God's generosity and grace. We're to be filled with gratitude, not guilt, when we pray these prayers. We acknowledge, I'm telling you what you already know, Jesus. I failed, and you've forgiven Praise be to God. And so as the worship team comes up and as the communion servers come up, I invite you, let's take a moment, reflect on what's held us back from Jesus, and then just admit to him that it's true and delight in his generosity that it's been forgiven. Would you stand with me? Let's pray this prayer of confession together. Almighty God, my heavenly Father, I have sinned against you through my own fault in thought, in word, in deed, in what I have done and in what I have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me all my offenses and grant that I may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen forward as the ushers lead you to take communion we take communion together in anticipation of what this verse says one day we will stand redeemed before the lord perfect forgiven and christ-like and so we take communion together as a foretaste of that promise because on the night that he was betrayed jesus took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back and we experience what he's promised in full. Let's take communion together. as we come to a close for those of you who are thinking I want to know that God who searches me out when I feel lost or I'm running when I feel nothing or when I feel despair I want to know him better can I invite you there'll be some prayer ministers over on your right come receive prayer from somebody else who's been there as well let them be the physical presence of God to pray words of blessing hope and life to you Particularly if you've never given yourself to follow Jesus before, I entreat you, the right answer to Jesus' invitation to come know him is always yes. Would you come up to the prayer ministers and let them pray with you? For the rest of us, would you hold your hands out? We do this every week to remind ourselves we come needy and lost, sinful and sick, and Jesus decides, is committed to be generous and gracious to us. So let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you with empty hands. Needing to know your generosity and grace. So that we won't be jealous or greedy, but instead, with a full experience of your abundance, would have great would have great amounts to offer the people around us. To those who are in despair, sick or hurting, weak and wearied. So, Father, I pray bless my brothers and sisters by filling their hands today with your goodness, generosity, and love, so that out of the overflowing abundance of our own lives, we'd be a gift to the world that you've created, that you love, and desire to redeem. Glorify yourself, we pray. Amen. Blessings to you this Sunday, brothers and sisters.